Welcome back for part two of the Gary Groth interview. Let's continue. I have an interview I want to specifically ask you about for a second, which was the Jack Kirby interview that you did. My only concern about that was the point in time that he was at, it seemed like he said things that have later been used against him to impact his credibility, to say, well, he didn't really do all of that. And you can't say that no one else ever did anything creative and so forth. It was a hard interview. As you were doing it, as a journalist, do you feel like you're supposed to protect the subject? And I would say, no, you shouldn't. But at the same time, the fan person in me was like, oh man, this is going to have ramifications and people are going to quote this on Facebook 50 years from now because I was that prescient. And so I worry about that. When you were doing journalism, did you ever think about those aspects, the (laughs) impact it was going to have? Well, mm, I was certainly aware of them, but I'm also from the Oriana Falasi School of Interviewing, where I think that the interview subject has to stand or fall in what he says. I mean, have I cut out stuff from an interview that I think for prudential reasons? I probably have. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I probably have. But with Kirby, I caught him at a specific time and he was angry. And of course, I think he had a right to be angry. Right. I wanted to capture that anger too, because Jack did not express his anger often. He kept it in. He repressed his anger. And at this point, for whatever reason, he decided to let go. And, you know, yeah, I mean, he said some things that were exaggerations. You know, he said Stanley didn't write a word. That's not true. I understood what he was saying. And I think anyone who understands the history of Kirby and Lee's relationship knows what he was saying, which was, of course, that he wrote the stories in the sense that he laid them out and he wrote notes on the sides of the pages explaining what the action So he, in effect, wrote the stories, but it was Stan Lee who wrote all the dialogue for the stories. And I think everyone knows that. So that was, you know, an exaggeration or a lie, depending on how you want to spin it. But like when he said he created Spider-Man's costume, were you kind of thinking, okay, no, you didn't, but you let him keep talking? How'd that go? I can't tell you what I was thinking at that moment. I really don't. I mean, looking back over that interview, I actually wish that I had prepared more thoroughly than I did. I don't know, you might notice, I did that interview in 86, something like that. No, it was like 91 or so, not 90. No. No, it had to be before 89. I'm not sure when, 86 or 7 maybe. But I wish I had prepared a little bit more so I could have delved more deeply into some of the things he said. But I'm not unhappy with that. I think it shows a side of Jack that is too often not shown. Do you still have that audio tape of it? Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Two questions about TCJ real quick. So Jim Shooter, there was a lot of articles on him in the 80s, obviously. Do you feel, you know, there's this whole thing of canceling a person these days, cancel culture or whatever, but it wasn't really like to that degree back then. Maybe wasn't there really in any real way, but a lot of the articles I was just kind of looking back on about Jim Shooter and about work for hire, it seemed maybe, and I could be wrong and you can correct me if I am, is that it seemed like they were kind of conflating the Kirby original art and lack of creator status and evil Marvel corporate people and then conflating it with Shooter and kind of his OCD personality and kind of combining it in a way where could it have been that you had potentially stained his reputation with the baby boomer generation that was reading that to the point where now he wasn't as viable and now 
he's in a poorhouse now because he's not as viable. You're talking about now? No, I mean like, I mean, yeah, he's still alive, right? Yeah, yeah. So the stuff that happened back then, did it mess up the fan base where now like no one was interested in him anymore? Or did he genuinely, was he his own worst enemy in that sense? Well, has he been canceled? I don't think. No, I'm saying is like when people read enough bad things about a person and they don't yeah. want to deal with him anymore. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, let me just say that I am thoroughly opposed to cancel culture. I find it odious and pernicious. And that's not what we were doing and that's not what we attempted to do. I mean, I did think Shooter was sort of the poster boy for a semi-literate Philistine buffoonish comic book editor at that time, you know, with this kind of simple-minded views of what constituted a story and what constituted acceptable comics, you know, a thoroughly mediocre editor who was imposing that mediocrity on his staff. I mean, there were two aspects. This. One is whatever criticism we ran about him. And the other side was journalistically the sheer number of people that were angry for whatever reason, whether they were angry for him firing them or letting them go, or in their opinion, ruining the books they were working on and so forth. You know, he got a lot of heat, no doubt about it. But as I recall, there were an awful lot of people who defended him. And I haven't paid any attention to him in a long time. But as of a few years ago, he still seems to have a fan base. Yeah, he still has a fan base. Years ago, he still had sort of a blog where he's writing his revisionist history. And he still seems to be sufficiently worshipped. He has a voice, that's for sure. And he does write his own way of telling all of that. Yeah, his own view of history. So no, I think we probably just gave an alternative perspective. I gotcha. And that's good. I have a question since Alex brought up cancel culture, and then we'll go back. I'm going to take us off the rails for a minute. Did you read this morning's Daily Beast story about the sex aspects of things? No, I heard about it, but I haven't read it yet. I hear it's a good summary. It's of- a very good summary. It's very cohesive in, in everything. But it links all of that to a lot of the things that you were worried about and talking about when Comics Journal started. I mean, it talks about Kirby and, and his art. It talks about pay and how people are cheated and that sexual discrimination and sexual harassment are born from those labor issues of the earlier times. That It's all part of the same mix. And I thought of you as I was preparing for this and I read that. The question that I would come to from that is, because I also know you signed the letter this week or last week about cancel culture and things. Didn't you sign that petition? I would have loved to, but I didn't. I mean, I wasn't asked to. Okay. I would have, though. When these people are doing these things, the Warren Ellis kind of example or whatever, where they have a long history of this, it's not to say that we should support canceling, but where do you stand on that in terms of, do we just not talk about it? Do we let them go forward with it? Or what do you do? Is cancel culture a problematic go-to just like PC was years and years ago, where it becomes a way to distract from actually doing things that are important to accomplish? That would be my question. I think you have to distinguish between the artist and his work. And I'm not intimately familiar with, I mean, I, I'm aware that Warren Ellis has been accused of a number of transgressions, and I'm going to read that piece. I mean, it's difficult. What you shouldn't do is conflate the person with the work. and cancel the work. I don't know if I'm trying to pick some. Every one of these is so unique 
to themselves. So it's, it's hard to choose anyone. But I mean, I guess what I object to is, let me take an artist who I admire, who's Robert Crumb. That's a good one. You know, he's the poster boy of cancel culture. You probably know that a room at a convention in Massachusetts, I think the convention is called MICE. They had rooms that were named after cartoonists, and they had Eisner Room and maybe the McKay Room, and they had the Crumb Room. They recently renamed the Crumb Room because he's seen as a misogynist and a racist. Why the Eisner Room is still there is something we should talk about. But Well, that might not be for in the future. Do you know that? Or? Well, it's because there's these people saying with his, you know, with his character from the 40s. Ebony, yeah. There are people out there putting a petition to like get rid of his name and stuff like that. Right. I mean, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Obviously, there's this backlash against Crumb. And you're probably aware that he was, his name, not even him, but his name was booed at the Ignatz Awards like two years ago. I don't think Crumb is above criticism. But I do think that, you know, this kind of mob mentality, this kind of reductionist mob mentality that fixates on one very narrow part of his comics career, you know, is intellectually and morally reductionist and does not serve the purposes of viewing an artist in his entirety. And it's this kind of intellectual and moral reductionism that bothers me so much, that it's focused on to the exclusion of everything else. And I'm not saying that that can't be argued and it can't be debated. We were talking about that at Comic Fest in San Diego recently. Mary Fleener and I were on a panel. She brought up the crumb example of exactly that and people standing up and protesting and saying they were going to leave if he was there and things that seem just outrageous and very dangerous. Where it gets complicated is when you're not separating the art from the person, but where you have editorial, something like Shooter's Misdeeds and Handling of People while he was at Marvel, there isn't enough art to justify that. I mean, editorial policy is a problem that has to be corrected. And if it's not corrected, if it's not canceled because of how they're behaving in their job, which is what that is. I think that's a different thing. And the problem is it all gets conflated into one discussion sometimes. Yeah. I'm not sure what part of Shooter you're talking about. No, he was just an example. I mean, just how he behaved toward people. He was let go, right? He was eventually let go. Yeah, 87. I think it was just like a corporate policy that he caused so many problems. And, and I don't know. I mean, they were tired of him. You know, the Trump syndrome. You just get tired of him. You want him out. You know, that's something very different. I don't really have much of an opinion about that. I don't think Shooter was poorly treated by anybody, really. He swam with the sharks and, you know, but someone like Crum is a much more complex case. It's the level and the tenor that I think, you know, literally reduces the level of discourse in the world. And it's what I just find so embarrassing. Well, on a lighter note, how about that Amazing Heroes, Alex? Yeah, so, uh, (laughs) exactly. Speaking of embarrassing... (laughs) Uh, Okay, so again, yeah, because you're not into the superhero thing. Although the Comics Journal did provide the highbrow criticism that the industry probably needed, and I think to an extent you helped the comic industry grow up to some degree. I think that that is true. But there was shortfalls in money. It's kind of like when Bill Gaines couldn't make money on the sci-fi, he was doing the horror stuff. You put out Amazing Heroes from 81 to 92, 
it was more of a superhero fanzine to make up for the cash deficit and also kind of take maybe some of the fan base from the comics reader. What was your perspective on doing that? Were you kind of biting your tongue with every issue or were you like, no, this is, you know, some of the fans like it. It is what it is. I mean, what were you thinking with that? Well, I mean, we published Amazing Heroes in order to bring in cash so we could support the rest of what we were doing. And so the question we asked ourselves, and this was in 1980, roughly 82 when it started. Yeah, 81 is what I have. Could we publish a reasonably intelligent magazine about mainstream comics? Right. And one that would bring in some cash. Kim edited it for most of its run. And this is where we go back to Kim having a much more moderate view of comics. Honestly, I never paid any attention to Amazing Heroes because it was entirely Kim's baby. He edited it and, you know, I would occasionally read a piece. And, you know, and it did run some good stuff. You know, I mean, we would run interviews with Steve Root or Howard Chaikin or, you know, a variety of other artists. They would certainly be on a better level than The Buyer's Guide and all the other fan magazines that were out there. To me, it was just this thing that happened in another part of the office that I didn't pay a lot of attention to. I see. So you weren't that close enough to it to detest it? No, I was detesting too much, uh, you know, else. (laughs) As long as you're detesting something. You know, it covered the whole mainstream arena. It covered it as well as it could be covered, as intelligently as it could be covered. But my feeling was that, you know, I didn't even want that to exist. The less I knew about that, the better. You know, it was sort of oxymoronic to me to cover that area of comics intelligently, even though we were doing that. You know, I mean, I was a little schizophrenic about it, but, you know, we did all kinds of things like that in order to keep our heads above water. I mean, we were always, always on the precipice of financial ruin. Yeah. And that helped to keep it going. And Amazing Heroes was always, it turned into a biweekly and it was definitely a profit center. So it it helped support us through hard times and it helped support us finance projects that we wanted to do. It was a really good, steady moneymaker. And we never shied away from doing stuff like that, you know, in 19... 1981, 82, we published a couple of books called The X-Men Companion. That's right. Yeah, I have those. You know, which I had absolutely no interest in myself, but we figured, okay, they'll make money. Peter Sanderson edited them. You know, we published them. I never really had a problem publishing stuff that made money that would allow us to publish work that we believed in and that would lose money. I accepted that very early on. I have a question, just real quick, as a person doing not The Amazing Heroes, but the other stuff. As a divorce lawyer, I get used to people hating me to the point where it just is part of the job. It's almost a point of pride sometimes because you know that you did a good job because of that. I was reading reports by people that were talking positively about you, but talking about how much other people in the industry, Marvel and DC, detested you, where if your name came up, I forgot who it was, but they were sharing a car with Bob Layton and with Jim Shooter. And the person defended you slightly. What was it he said? He said something about their rectums tightened up so much that it was a reverse fart. Barry Smith, I think. That was Barry Windsor Smith. That's right. What was that like? And do you miss it? Because you're not hated as much these days because of age or whatever. Do you miss it? I do miss it in a way. (laughs) I mean, in a way, I'm quite happy. You know, I've achieved a zen-like calm. I don't have to wake up in the morning wondering, you know, what backlash is going to be. And you're not a wayward teen anymore. Yeah, right. I'm a wayward dotard. (laughs) (laughs) I do miss it. I mean, 
you have to understand, I didn't do that in order to be hated. It was just a logical consequence to what I felt I had to do. And I always felt like I was hated by the right people. That was very important. Right. If Kirby hated you, that'd be different. Yeah. I mean, that would be devastating. But really, you know, the people who hated me were the people that I had very little respect for. And so in that sense, it worked out very well. It was a very organic part of my life, walking into a room and figuring out how many people in this room hate me. So Amazing Heroes coming to an end in 1992, kind of like the way you had kind of sucked some of the fan base from the comics reader. Was it like in the 90s, there was so much of a glut of comics and magazines and yada yada, Wizard came out. Did that basically contribute to the end of Amazing Heroes? Yeah, Wizard and uh, I think there was a magazine called Hero Magazine. Okay. It was kind of a mini wizard. It was like a kind of wizard alternative. They were just far stupider than Amazing Heroes. And they therefore captured that market. Right. Okay. You know, our circulation was kind of going down. When I say Amazing Heroes was profitable, you know, I don't mean immensely profitable, but by our meager standards, it was profitable. So if it went down, you know, if the sales went down a couple thousand, then it was marginal and no longer, you know, profitable. They just ate away. Comics just became stupider and stupider. And the fact that the comics community, the comics fans, however you want to characterize it, they could no longer support a magazine like Amazing Heroes, I think, is a great barometer for just how stupid the comics subculture became. You know, you had the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That was the beginning of the time when black and white comics became stupid. Then you had Image. Now, I don't know, I think you had... I think Wizard came out before Image, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think of them as kind of together for some reason, but yeah. Yeah, I do too, but one had to be before the other. So I think it was, you know, Wizard, but it was just this fucking locomotive of stupidity and it couldn't be stopped. I mean, Image was sort of the apex of idiocy and hypocrisy. Do you feel like Image got better though, like now? Well, probably, yeah. I know it transformed, of course. Honestly, I don't follow it. Now it seems like instead of just doing brainless Marvel knockoff comics, they're doing middle-brow genre stuff. <laughs> it's how Chaykin can work, because he certainly isn't going to get anything at Marvel or DC. Well, didn't he just do something for DC? Howard kind of has been a victim of this cancel mob as well. Do you think so? Yeah, his divided states of hysteria. He thinks so. Yeah, because we did a one-on-one interview with him, or rather two-on-one, me and Jim did. He goes into detail about that. He felt stabbed in the back by people. I'd like to know more about that. I remember when that happened. That only happened like a couple of years ago, right? Three years. I remember sending him an email saying, why don't you tell everyone to go fuck off? It seemed like he was treated shabbily by his publisher. Yeah. They didn't speak up for him. But they did publish his Hey Kids book. Well, because it was safe. But I mean, they didn't stand behind him when they needed to. When he needed them to. No, a lot of creators didn't either. I mean, he feels very stabbed in the back by people that he thought he was friends with as well. I can understand that. I mean, I was going to say, you know, I think Howard thinks he's more uncommercial than he is. I think he still has a lot of commercial cachet. Oh, yeah. I love Howard's stuff. So one more question about the Comics Journal, then Jim's going to go talk about publishing and things. So the Comics Journal and you were involved in some lawsuits with various creators, you know, (laughs) Harlan Ellison and Fleischer. And first, were those scary for you at all? And then two, you know, just going through them, what can you share with us as far as surviving all that stuff? And do you hate lawyers? Oh, my God. I hate all lawyers except my own. You know, I have a great lawyer. Uh, The lawyer who uh, fought all that litigation for me is still our lawyer. I still speak to him about legal issues. It's such a different period. You know, it's hard to 
explain to people who didn't live through that and didn't understand. We were sued three times within the course of about, I think they all came within 18 months. And the first lawsuit was instigated in 1980. And then two more quickly followed. I think they thought, you know, they might as well jump on here. And I think the aim of these lawsuits was to put us out of business. You know, they wanted to bury us. Was Fleischer the first one? Michael Fleischer was the first one. His lawsuit was based on an interview I did with Harlan Ellison, about which we could have a separate video cast. Can we? Because I would like to go into great detail about, because you guys had a huge falling out over that, and then he sued you. And then it was in letter pages forever. I read everything about it through the Comics Journal. Did you? Okay, yeah. You know, knowing Ellison, you have to watch your back at all times. So I interviewed Ellison. You know, Ellison's another guy. You know, we should talk about people who I met and whose friendship and professional relationship I treasure and love. But Ellison, (laughs) you know, I looked up to Ellison too and did a long interview with him. And Michael Fleischer sued us based on that interview. Ellison made a couple of assertions that could be either considered fact or opinion, depending on how you looked at it, and said that Fleischer, based on his work, was crazy as a bedbug. And based on that, Fleischer sued us. He asserted that Ellison was saying that he was clinically insane and damaged his reputation as a result. And then a short while later, Alan Light sued me for an editorial I wrote. This was on the occasion of Alan Light selling the buyer's guide to that company in Michigan or wherever it was. Yeah, Krause or something like that? Yeah, Krause. And it was sort of my farewell editorial. And I accused him... I accused him of engendering spiritual squalor. He sued me for that. And then Rich Buckler, you remember Rich Buckler? He sued us for asserting that he plagiarized Jack Kirby. And that was an article written by Ted White, who I had previously told you was our music columnist and sounds fine. So we had three lawsuits going on at the same time. And I was, when we were sued initially, I think I was 25. It would have been 1980. I think it was 25 when Fleischer sued us. And, you know, I mean, we were just scraping by. We had absolutely no money. We could barely just survive. We could barely pay our rent. It was maybe three or four of us comprising the company. You know, we weren't putting out Amazing Heroes. We weren't putting out, I think we were only putting out the Comics Journal in 1980. So it was only probably two or three of us working in this little office. And so he sued us for $2 million. I think you asked me, if I was scared. I don't remember being scared. I remember being exhilarated. And I remember thinking we should win this, you know, if we had the money to fight it. I remember being invigorated. I mean, somehow we just thought we were going to somehow win this. The problem is we had no money. So that's a big problem, as a divorce attorney must know. Yes. So Fleischer sued us first, a $2 million lawsuit. And I read about it. I think I read about it in Publishers Weekly. Before we were served, I read (laughs) this notice that he sued us. And I mean, somebody brought it to my attention because I'm sure I wasn't reading Publishers Weekly at the time, but somebody brought it to my attention and said, hey, you know, like Fleischer said he filed suit against you. I said, what are you talking about? And, you know, send me the the article. And I call up Ellison. Ellison, you know, in his usual bravado says, don't worry about him. Fuck him. He's not going to sue us. And I said, well, you know, it says he sued us. (laughs) Don't worry about it. So I said, well, you know, a little concerned about this. And he said, don't worry about it. He said, I'm with you in this. If he sues you, I am with you 100%. You know, and I was saying, well, you know, I don't have any money, you know, to fight a lawsuit. And he said, I'm with you. I'll help. They reassured me. I felt good about that. So a few weeks later, we were served. And then Ellison was served. 
I didn't know what to do. We didn't even have a lawyer. So I called up Ellison and I said, we've both been served. I said, what do we do? And he said, well, you know, you got to find a lawyer. And I said, well, you know, I don't know how to do that. You know, I don't know how to pay your lawyer. Can you help us with this? You know, you said you were going to be, you know, behind us with this. And he said, well, we're on the phone. I'm in Connecticut. He's in LA. I am freaking out a little bit. And he said, look, man, I'm watching TV. I'm busy. I got to go. And that was it. And I'm like on the phone, you know, I thought this guy was behind us. He has money. He had just won like $200,000 from a lawsuit of his own. So I figured when he said he could help us, he meant he could help me financially. So I didn't know what to do. So we hired lawyers. We, we found lawyers in New York and these were high powered lawyers. So we, I employed them. I didn't know anything about lawyers or lawyering, you know, and so there were some initial motions back and forth. And I remember about, you know, six months to a year into the lawsuit. And again, keep in mind, I'm like 25, maybe 26. And I go into my lawyer's office in New York. I go to visit him. And there's some motions back and forth already. And this guy was like, he was a slick operator. This guy was smart and he'd been around. And of course, I wanted to win this because there was a First Amendment issue at stake. And he said, look, he got me into a conference room, one of those big conference rooms with a, you know, a 20-foot table. And I sat there and he said, look, we can get this guy into deposition and I can annihilate him, but he could still win. So I think you should cut a deal. And I kind of walked out. I mean, I was just kind of in a daze because, you know, here's my lawyer advising me to cut a deal. So that didn't sit well with me. So I don't want to drag this out too long, but I didn't know what to do. So I called the Playboy Foundation, which was Hugh Hefner's First Amendment organization. And I talked to a guy there named Bert Joseph, who was a First Amendment advocate, and he worked there. And I explained the situation. I said, you know, I don't have any money. You know, we publish a magazine about comic books. And he said, what? He said, yeah, comic books. He said, all right. He said, here's the name of a lawyer, First Amendment attorney in New York. Call him. I know him. He's a friend of mine. And he might take you on. And that lawyer's name was Ken Norwood. And I went into Ken's office, laid the whole situation out for him, showed him the magazine. And he looked at it and he said, we could win this. I'll do it. I'll take it on. Then we had to figure out how to pay him. But he was a little loose about that. He said, you know, you got to pay me, but we can figure it out. So he took us on and we fought that lawsuit for seven years until we finally, in a jury trial in the Southern District Court of New York, won. It was a brutal fight. It was seven years of our lives. It was tremendous amounts of depositions. Many people in the comics industry were subpoenaed. Many people were deposed. We were subpoenaing people left and right. It just went on and on and on. The depositions lasted for weeks. The jury trial was four weeks long. It was just an amazing brawl. Seven years is an incredible amount of time to be caught up emotionally in that. Yeah. Well, thank God we were young. And it divided the comics industry. Here's what's possibly more interesting is that it divided the comics industry. It divided them into two camps. One was ours and one was by default Fleischer's. And the reason people were supporting Fleischer, you know, Fleischer really wasn't part of the comics community. I mean, nobody really knew him very well. He didn't hang out with other comics creators. He wasn't particularly liked. He wasn't, I don't think, disliked, but I mean, he just wasn't part of that community. But people wanted to see us destroyed. And so as a result, they supported him. So they weren't on his side as much as they were not on your side. Right. They weren't on his side per se. They just hated us so much that he was a convenient bludgeon. But you had to fight it because 
the impact, if you hadn't, would be how do you do criticism of anybody's work if you have to worry about getting sued for saying something derogatory about that? Well, I felt strongly about that. I mean, first of all, of course, I mean, we go out of business. I mean, there would be no comics journal. But what happened to Harlan? Because he was named in it, too. He was there throughout most of the suit. And our falling out was due to certain machinations throughout the lawsuit. You know, he was my co-defendant, but he was so utterly fucking treacherous that I had this one guy suing me and I had a co-defendant who would stick a knife in my back at the nearest opportunity. I had to watch both of them. He eventually sued you himself, didn't he, over something? That was in 2006, I think. And that was about something else entirely. Yeah, that's a whole other story. I could do this all day because I have all these follow-up questions. In the Comics Journal, one of the things I respect most about it has been not just your lawsuits, but other important lawsuits you have covered in a very smart way that I could appreciate as a lawyer. Your depositions that you include, the transcripts, things like that, that nobody else does. And I think it's very important to do. I want to move on to the publishing part rather than the Comics Journal part, although I wish we had more time to do both, and maybe we can do another interview. You could bore your viewership into a blind stupor. (laughs) Two points on Comics Journal, and then I'll move, uh, three actually. Honk. I want to ask you about Honk. I have all the issues of Honk, and I really enjoy that, but what made you do that, and why was it not successful? I mean, all I can do is tell you not enough people bought it. It was an oddball humor magazine published, let me see, hold on, that would be 85 to 88, something like that, 86 to 80, yeah, something like that. I mean, it was just an oddball magazine that very few people at that time are going to buy. And success or failure depended on like a thousand people. I mean, if a thousand more people bought it, it would continue. And I don't remember, you know, you'd have to look in the, you don't have a copy handy, I guess. Tom Mason, who worked in our art department, might have started the magazine. And if that's the case, I think he edited it. Either he started it and edited it from the beginning or he he took it over at some point. But I think he just came to me. He was a designer, worked in the art department. And I think he just came to me and said, you know, I'd like to put this magazine together and it'll include this and this and this and uh, these kinds of artists. And this is the direction. And what about it? And sounded good to me. I say it partly as a segue to we're going to talk about publishing because In the issue that I believe it was the one that had World's Toughest Milkman on the cover in an interview there, it was a European comic. The name is escaping me of him, but it was about the giraffe and it was playing with panels. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Is this something we published? Yes. This was in Hong. Okay. Okay. It was entitled The Giraffe and it was like a nine panel grid, but the character kept moving around through the nine panels. It's a famous European artist. There were things like that that were quirky. And I'll let you know who it is. I'm just blanking. Yeah. But you guys were introducing material that nobody saw anywhere else with that. Could that have been Frank Can? Andre Frank Can? Yes, it totally was. And you can't see my books, unfortunately. No, no, I can't see your books. So. But you did publish this recently. Yeah, and kind they, of uh, it a little Die bit. laughing. But they do exist. The books do actually exist. It's like a Steranko effect. Yes. I just want to say, you were interested in publishing, and I know Kim Thompson was a lead in a lot of this, but that's something I want to talk about, that part. Before I leave Comics Journal, a couple of things. What was it like to actually get, you know, we talked about people that liked you or, you know, that got mad at you or whatever. What was it like to get yelled at by Jules Pfeiffer over your Eisner comments? 
it was intimidating. I'm a huge fan of Pfeiffer. Me too. It would make me cry if I got yelled at by him. Yeah, it was intimidating. And maybe we should explain to the listeners what I'm talking about. You had written something about Eisner that called into question his actual ability. Like you were critical of his actual art, which a lot of people stay away from to some degree. Right. And Pfeiffer wrote to you or did he call you? No, this was in an interview I did with Jules. I wrote a review of three books by Eisner. And this was his post-spirit graphic novel phase. You know, when he started doing A Contract with God in 78, I think it was. The building, I think, was one of the... The building was one. But then he did, you know, he did a succession of graphic novels after that. I think my review appeared in 89. It was a review of a couple of his books, including his autobiographical book called The Dreamer. Right. Which other people are critical of as well. Which was really, truly a miserable book. I mean, just fundamentally dishonest. And I wrote as much. So a few years later, maybe only a year or two later, I'm interviewing Jules, who is one of my heroes. Of course, I had seen Colonel Knowledge before I had seen Pfeiffer's cartoons. So anyway, this was a big opportunity for me, I thought. I mean, interviewing Jules. And Jules was, you know, he was exactly the kind of cartoonist I wanted to get in the comics journal. You know, I wanted to get outside of comic books, and I wanted to get outside of comic strips. I wanted to do editorial cartoonists, and I wanted to do uncategorizable cartoonists like Jules or Ralph Stedman. That was important to me. So I was in Jules' studio, and we were talking, and I forget how it came up. It seems like he must have brought it up, because I don't think I would have brought it up. But he told me that he thought I was wrong. You know, my assessment of Eisner was wrong. And I defended myself. But I mean, it was a forceful attack on the review. He attacked and I defended myself. But I don't think I expected that. He goes back a long way with Eisner. To the beginnings, yes. Yeah, I mean, Eisner was the guy who hired him when he was 14 years old or something. And so he has a great sentimental attachment to Eisner. And I think that more than anything else is why he felt the need to defend Eisner. One other question, just to go back to the lawsuits and things. As a journalist, was it difficult for you, for the Comics Journal, to be covering the Comics Journal? How do you, as a journalist, write about something when you're in the middle of it, where you're part of the story? Well, I don't remember who wrote the news pieces about the journal's own lawsuits. I don't know if we got anyone outside the journal to do it. You know, it never bothered me. I mean, the whole conflict of interest between us publishing books and the comics journal reviewing books never bothered me one whit. I always felt that I had the ability to stand outside of both the comics journal and our book publishing to be objective about that. And I think that's proven if anyone, if any academic has taken this on and has done a survey of all the books of ours that we've reviewed. I think they'll find that we do not favor our books. So I never had a problem with that. I mean, if we, if we got a negative review in on a book that I love, we published a negative review of Love and Rocket very early on because I wrote a very positive review of it before we started publishing it. And then we started publishing it. And about a year in, we ran a very negative review of Love and Rockets, for example. And I also had this, in retrospect, naive view that the artists we published were so good and so sort of incontestably good, that they wouldn't care if we ran a negative review of their work. Now, I think in retrospect, that was not true. But, you know, I felt compelled to do that. Like if we got a review in unsolicited, and if it was a negative review of our, uh, one of our books, and I thought it was intellectually defensible, not just a hatchet job, you know, I would run. It was a difficult place to be. So tell us about like reprinting newspaper comic strips. 
like Prince Valiant and whatnot. First, how do you make something like that profitable? <laughs> because sometimes it isn't. Yeah, well, your premise is false. You don't make it profitable. There you go. I'm just kidding. You made money on peanuts. Some of it is and some of it isn't. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, okay, here, here's the thing. When we started publishing comics in 1981, you know, Kim's and my idea was just to publish great cartooning. It didn't matter if it was European cartooning or old newspaper strips or contemporary work like Love and Rockets. To us, it was just all good cartooning. Yeah. So we didn't make a hard distinction between, you know, this is our classics line and this is this line and that's line. It, it, to us, it was just all great cartooning and that's all we wanted to publish. So Rick Marshall came on the scene in like 1980 or 81 and he proposed Nemo to us, the magazine about right. comics, which we published 31 issues mm -hmm. of and which he edited amazing magazine. Yeah. And that was influential. There's a lot of historians on the Facebook group that just, they were influenced by those. It's a tremendous monument to Rick's knowledge and passion. So Rick brought a few books to us. We published a Red Berry book. Now, I don't know why Rick brought Red Berry to us. Maybe he was in public domain or something, but we published a Red Berry book. We published Popeye. I'm not sure if Popeye was Rick's idea or was it Bill Blackbeard's idea? I'm not sure. Started publishing Popeye in like 1982. Yeah. My dates might be off by a year or so. We started publishing Prince Valiant around 82. And the reason we published all of these is just because we loved great cartooning. We just wanted to publish good cartooning. It didn't matter where it came from or what it was. So to us, it was just all a part of the whole. Now, as far as making up for stuff that is losing money, you talked about doing Amazing Heroes in the 80s, and we briefly mentioned it before, but in the 90s then, as Amazing Heroes goes to the wayside, you guys start publishing Eros, the pornographic comics, to bring in some money. Does that basically then help fund, and did it help fund as effectively as Amazing Heroes did in the 80s, Eros in the 90s, to fund the other publishing ventures? It was far more effective than Amazing Heroes. Oh, wow. We were losing money. We went through a period of like, I would say almost two years where we were just losing ground starting around 89. And I could see us losing ground and I just couldn't think of anything to do about it. And, you know, neither Kim nor I were good at coming up with money-making schemes. We just weren't good at it. You know, we were good at kind of guerrilla publishing what we wanted to publish, but we weren't good at just coming up with something that would make a lot of money. Yeah. And if you look at most publishers, they always have these tentpole projects that make a lot of money. We were just backsliding for a year and a half, two years. You know, we didn't know what to do about it. We saw it was happening and we couldn't figure it out. So unbelievably, one day I just came up with this brilliant idea that sex sells just dawned on mm -hmm. me. <laughs> right. Out of the blue. I thought, well, you know, shit, we published erotic comics. You know, there was Omaha, the cat dancer that did well. God, I don't know. Was Cherry around then? I mean, there were a few erotic comics. I think Chaykin had done Black Kiss by then. Right, right. Yeah. You know, so there were like, you know, a little sprinkling erotic comics. And coincidentally, they all sold well. And it really took me a while to put two and two together. <laughs> Maybe we should do Martin this. Goodman would have jumped all over that a lot sooner. You know, I'm, I'm surprised Al Goldstein didn't. So I talked to Kim about it. And we agonized over this decision. It's like, well, should we do this? You know, it's porn. And I would talk to other people about it. I mean, everyone we talked to said, ah, you know, if you have to do it, do it. Right. I remember talking to Robert Crumb about it. And I said, well, you know, we're struggling with this. We might, we might do this. And now, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I feel good about this. And he said, Jesus, you know, get over it. Just do it. I mean, he was just so 
Like, what are you complaining? Yeah, about? I don't see how he would say no to that anyway. Right. I mean, what he did wasn't porn, you know, but it was pornographic. Would you say they're similar to Tijuana Bibles, what you guys did? I guess not. Mostly not, no. I mean, what we did, it ran the gamut. I mean, if you haven't studied Eros, it just ran the gamut. I used to see those at a Virgin Megastore when I was in high school. I didn't buy any because my mom would get mad at me, but I flipped through it. I didn't put it down. I mean, I was flipping through them. Well, depending on what you looked at, I mean, it could be just extraordinary. Yeah. If it was something like by Frank Thorne or Francisco Solano Lopez, it could be really superb work, or it could just be weird, brainless sex Yeah, like orgies and stuff. I remember thinking, I didn't know penises could have this many veins. Right. Or, you know, this person had this many penises. (laughs) But we started it. We sent out a call. We sent out, I don't know, what did we do? There weren't emails back then. So we sent out letters to like, cartoonists saying, you know, we're starting an erotic line of comics. And if you have any ideas, and if you ever wanted to do one, let us know. Well, apparently there were all these repressed cartoonists out there. Ready to go. We were inundated with submissions. Frank Thorne was in the original wave. Yeah. You know, we published several erotic comics. I think it was 1991. And I am not exaggerating. In nine months, we had dug ourselves out of the hole. Nine months of publishing Eros comics. That's like direct market to stores and stuff, right? It was to comic stores, who many of whom created, you know, an erotic section that was composed mostly of our books. And we did a huge mail order business too. So, you know, then we just went all in. We had Narrow's editor. That became this division. You know, as far as I was concerned, it was like Amazing Heroes. It was like this division. I didn't have to pay too much attention to it. We had a Narrow's editor. And we published, you know, like Mountain of Filth. I mean, it was just uh, an unbelievable tsunami of erotic stuff. And some of it was great. And some of it was, you know, lousy. And, you know, we just cranked it out. And that supported all of the grossly uncommercial alternative work that we wanted to publish during that period. Yeah. And you guys are reprinting or have reprinted Barks, EC, foreign material, like Craypacks and whatnot. So, you know, it's nice to have something that can fund that sort of artistic, because you were introducing a whole generation of Americans to this stuff. To the good stuff, I mean, and maybe the bad stuff. We were introducing a whole generation of Americans to pornography, too. <laughs> Is that why the Washington newspaper gave you the Genius Award? For which one? One of them announced you were the genius of the moment or the genius something. Yeah, I got the Genius Award. I mean, for which one? Pornography? For figuring out the sex cells. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's but it. you applied it in an effective way to survive, and, and that's admirable. I like that. We did, we did. It's one of the few things we actually did. You know, you can say Amazing Heroes was another one and, and, you know, a scattering of things once in a while. But that was a huge thing. The other thing you'll learn if you become a pornographer, every other phrase out of your mouth is a double entendre you intended to be or not. (laughs) So your mind's in the gutter all the time. You can't go three sentences without saying something. You know, when we were at the height, this was pre-digital. We had like piles of original art from, you know, Frank Thorne. You know, all these artists, I mean, it was amazing. You know, Robert Crumb. And we did seek out good work, you know. I mean, we obviously had to publish a certain amount of this stuff to stay afloat, but we really did seek out good work. We sought out gay erotica, lesbian erotica, good artists. Gilbert Hernandez did a book that was fantastic. We tried our best, but yeah, we were cranking it out. But I mean, I wouldn't call you a pornographer because it's not like you actually got women in a studio and making them do stuff, right? That's a different thing. I use that term ironically. But it's a fun irony. It took me a while, but I got a kick out of it. (laughs) Yeah, it was all drawn. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. No one was exploited in the making of this. Right, right. That's the thing. That's the key difference. Yeah. Comics. On the subject of comic strip reprints, I got a couple of questions. I brought up Peanuts, and I know that was a very profitable one that you actually published the entire run. There are others where I don't know. Did you run out of steam with the Dennis the Menace books? Because I was buying every one of those. I didn't. I think the readers ran out of steam. I bought them all. Sales were going down. That was why the decision was made. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think we published five or six volumes. It really dropped like a stone. The first volume sold really well. And then you always experience a drop in series. But then you hope it plateaus and just maintains a decent sales level. And Dennis and Menace just kept dropping. And I think after the third volume, most of the world had come to the conclusion that they had enough of Dennis the Menace. And I thought it was very unfortunate because, I mean, I love that stuff. And I thought Ketchum's work was just extraordinary. The drawing is beautiful. His line work is just so good. It's stunning. I mean, everything about him, you know, his gesture, the ink line, even the gags were good. Maybe they got worse later on. I'm not sure about that. But it wasn't just a dopey panel. The gags were funny and they were witty. Does this mean I may not find out how Barnaby ultimately ends? It will not mean that. I think the vast volume of Barnaby is going to the printer. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I've really enjoyed that as well. Yeah, another masterpiece. I think the best thing Crockett Johnson ever did. Yeah. And what about, is Pogo selling well? Pogo sells reasonably well, and we'll continue that for the duration, yeah. Okay. So Dennis and Menace was almost an outlier in terms of that. It was, yeah. I mean, I can't think of another, well, I mean, Roy Crane can't sell Roy Crane. Which shocks me, because I love Roy Crane stuff. Yeah, Roy Crane, he's a brilliant cartoonist, but my God, we can't sell him. Do these books stay in print? And why do some go out of print? I'm specifically talking about the one of the Popeye volumes. There's the one that I can't get unless you can get it to me. You know, I think of our Popeye series, I think there are eight volumes. And I think seven are out of print. Oh, now they are? I was victim only of one going out of print. I had all the others. Yeah, but Jim, you're talking about the one with the Jeep in it. No, I think there might be more than that out of print. There might be a few copies in our warehouse few volumes, but I looked at the inventory and they're all, almost all out of print. There's only one we have any significant inventory on. And the problem is you can't reprint those. They're too expensive to reprint. And that would be my segue to something I've wanted to ask you since we interviewed Trina Robbins and we were talking about Nell Brinkley. What is the reason that a book like that, that I think is so important, and I know there's a new Flapper book coming out, but the Nell Brinkley book, I bought probably five copies of it and gave it to people for holidays and things. Every niece, every girl that I knew, a young woman, I wanted her to read that. Why isn't that still in print? Is it just too expensive? Well, look, the only reason a book isn't in print is because the publisher doesn't think he can sell enough copies to warrant the reprint. And now you're getting into a little bit of minutiae here where a reprint always costs more to print than the original printing. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because you're going to be printing fewer copies. Okay, if you can print 5,000 copies of a book, initially, when you reprint it, you're going to be printing two. And that's because when you print a book, initially, you have a big bump in sales. The minute it comes out, it's going to sell a lot. And then it's going to become a backlist, and it's going to sell more slowly over time. Well, when you reprint a book, you start off selling it slowly. You do not have that initial sale. So you have to be able to warrant the cost of a reprint by the sales over the course of 12 to 18 months. And if you can't do that, you can't afford to reprint that book. That's really the only reason a book isn't reprinted. With the renaissance in printing of the important comic strips, is there something out there that you think 
that you haven't gotten or no one has printed that you think needs to be done? Or have we pretty much completed the set? I'm not sure. I think about this, of course, because I'm always interested in, you know, one of the great joys of my job is to find new work, even if that's old work. And I'm not sure, you know, if there's much in the way of entire strips that need to be reprinted at this point. I think there might be some strips that you could put in an omnibus that ought to be available, but that aren't of the first tier, you know, they're sort of like second or third tier strips would still display enough craft or enough wit or ingenuity or something that they they ought to be available to readers who want to see them. One thing I think is that there are a number of artists out there whose work should be reprinted. Tommy Unger, for example, who I interviewed a couple of years ago. Yeah, I have that issue. I read his books to my kid, my seven-year-old. Oh, do you? I love those books. Great children's books. From the early ones to Fog Island, everything in between. Yeah, Fog Island is terrific. We're reprinting his satirical books, which are our particular favorite of mine. So he just published his underground sketchbook, and we have a book of his called The Party. I think he just went to press. We're getting his satirical books back into print. Oh, that's fantastic. you know, there are other artists like Robert Osborne. You know, we just published Art Young. I have that. You guys did a great job on that. That's a fantastic book. Are you talking about Inferno? I'm talking about the other one that came out. I've ordered Inferno. I haven't gotten that yet. Yeah. I think there are a lot of artists whose work should be put back into print. But, you know, it's tough because there's only a limited number of people like you. That's true. And I can attest to that. (laughs) Yeah, I bet you can. (laughs) Thanks, Alex. Let's talk about the people that you published over the years that have made tremendous impact on us. Love and Rockets, obviously, is one of the most important books and creators that you've published. Who else? Would it be Neat Stuff? Would it be Naughty Bits? Would it be Meat Cake? Jim? Up to Hip Hop Family Tree? There's so many things. What are the things that you're most proud of? I hate this because I'm going to forget so, so many people, which I don't want to do. I mean, you mentioned Love and Rockets. I had no idea when we started publishing Love and Rockets that Jaime and Gilbert would become two of the greatest cartoonists alive. I was excited about their work. You know, I consider Love and Rockets our flagship publication. Who knew it was going to grow? I mean, I love the early stuff, but boy, they just went like a rocket off into other places. They both did. I remember being so exhilarated by their work. That was the kind of work that I was envisioning as to what comics could be. They actually evolved into that kind of work too. I mean, I saw it in their, you know, the earliest work, but then they just grew into, you know, my own conception of what comics could be, which is a medium that directs its expressive possibilities toward the human condition toward all of the things that are so, you know, that are most important to us in our lives. That's what they do. When we published Gilbert and Jaime shortly after that, we published Pete Bagg's Neat Stuff. And then Pete grew into one of the great satirical artists. And then shortly after that, Dan Klaus. You know, and Dan started off with Lloyd Llewellyn. You know, I saw such an absolute control over the media and what he was trying to like. I mean, Lloyd isn't great. I mean, he went on, Dan went on to do great work. But What I saw in Lloyd Llewellyn was just that he knew what he wanted to communicate and he knew what he wanted to convey and he did it perfectly. But I had no idea he could do anything more than that. And then he went on to deepen and broaden his range. Joe Sacco. Oh, yeah. I didn't mention him and I should have. Joe worked in our office. You know, he wrote news for the Comics Journal. He was a staff writer for the Comics Journal in 1985, I think. He would show us his comics every once in a while me and Kim. And, you know, they were okay. We started publishing Yahoo 
his anthology comic around 87, something like that, 86, 87. And they were short stories and autobiographical stories. And he was really just kind of finding his voice. And then, of course, he went to Israel and Palestine and started drawing Palestine. When did that start? 88, 89, something like that. And, you know, anyway, he found what he was meant to do, which was comic journalism. And, you know, he virtually invented that category. Joe's been a good pal since then. Kim is the one who discovered Chris Ware. He showed me his work in the Chicago Reader. It would have been around 1990, maybe. And I had read Chris's story in Raw before, but I didn't actually put the two together. Chris did this kind of superhero-y, satirical take on superheroes. But then Kim showed me the work in the Chicago Reader. And I remember thinking, well, you know, this is pretty interesting. But it was Kim who really brought him in and contacted Chris and arranged for Chris to do books for us. I think we published, I don't know, six or seven Acme Novelty Libraries before Chris went off on his own. You know, there's so many. I mean, Carol Tyler, we've been publishing for a long time, and she's extraordinary. Boy, I think we published Aileen, Aileen Kaminsky-Crum in the late 80s. We published a collection of her work. I'm proud of the fact that we published a lot of women cartoonists in the 1980s when, oh yeah, I mean, there were so few women. Did you do Julie Doucet stuff? No, we didn't. That'd be drawn in quarterly, wasn't it? B&Q did, Julie, I think, starting around 1990 or 91. That's right. It's hard to believe. People in their 20s just can't even conceive of this, but there were so few women in comics in the 1980s. You did La Perdita. Sure. Jessica Abel's work. Jessica yes. Abel's work. Yeah, I remember that. That was great. We published that, and we, I think we published two books by Jessica before that as well. You brought up Raw. I wanted to ask you that. What's the difference in your publishing philosophy or what you're trying to put out there compared to what Spiegelman was doing? Because it seems you've got some crossover, like Gary Panter. Sure. Were you approaching a different notion of audience or a different kind? Well, if Art had come to us and said, I want you to publish Raw, we would have published it in a New York Minute because it was certainly you know, the kind of work that we thought was inspirational. But Art has Art and Francoise, who co-edited it, you know, they had their own very distinct sensibility, which might be more experimental and less narrative-driven than mine and Kim's was, I think, which is kind of paradoxical because Mao's is very narrative-driven. But there was a lot of work in Raw. I mean, it ranged. I mean, there were narratives. Kim Deitch was in there. Charles Burns was in there. But there was work where the form took center stage and was possibly more important than the actual narrative. I think art probably had a greater and more intense interest in form than we did. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, we did. We cared about the form, and I think we have published some more experimental work, but he really sought it out. I think if there's any distinction, you know, distinction between us, it's probably his emphasis on form. I asked you in relation to comic strips if there was other things you thought needed to be published or what. And there's not the obvious missing greatness. Fantagraphics has started printing more and more European comics and foreign material. What are the things out there that are your targets that you want to really, really cover besides the Creepax books, which have been great? What else are you looking for? Well, I don't think I can cite specific artists we're looking for. A lot of great cartoonists you know, I've already been covered like Hugo Pratt. I mean, I would publish him in a minute, but I think somebody's publishing him, IDW or Dark Horse. And Jacques Tardy, you also have done his. Jacques Tardy was Kim's author. Kim 
said once that he thought Tardy was the greatest cartoonist in the world. I remember applying that, you know, not as long as Crumb is around, but we would have aesthetic. Oh, that's great. That was your conversation? Yeah, yeah. And I love Tardy. I want to make that clear. But that's how big an admirer Kim was of Tardy. So Kim started publishing Tardy and, and we're continuing doing that. Tardy has a lot more work. We have two books in house right now by Tardy, and he's certainly one of the great European cartoonists. You know, Craypax was someone I was very happy to publish. I was familiar with his work from many, many years ago. But his work had been so, you know, Catalan, I think it was, published a book of his called The Man in Harlem. And that was a fantastic book. No erotica whatsoever. It was just a drama about the situation in Harlem. And so I was a big Craypax fan. But, you know, most of the big historic European cartoonists, I think, have been published here or are being published here. Not European, but I want to see Brachia get a full publishing of everything. Oh, yeah. Well, he is. We're publishing all of his work. He's probably my favorite. Well, he is a genius. You know, stylistically, he's breathtaking because he doesn't have one style. He has multiple styles. I mean, he is so, you know, words fail me. I mean, he's so amazing. And every single book he does is so stylistically distinctive. He is masterful. The works in themselves, each individual work is extraordinary. So far, we published Paramus and we published Mort Cinder and we have Eternaut 1969. Can't wait for that. Yeah. Alex gave me the German copy translation, so I actually have the work, but not in English. Oh, you do? Yeah. I like both Eternauts, although there's some stuff after, but that 69, I mean, it's not as long as the first one, but it's beautiful panels. And I actually had yes. to type it in German to English and Google just to kind of get what was going on, but it was good. Well, soon you will. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, Brecht is an artist that, you know, we published Paramus in the 80s. Kim spearheaded that. We published four issues of Paramus. I think they were 48-page magazines. And here's a funny little story. So I wanted to publish the whole book, Paramus. And I'd read our own four-issue series of Paramus when we published it in the 80s. And so anyway, we got the license to publish all of Alberto Brescia's work. So Paramus was on the list. So I thought, okay, good. We'll publish Paramus. It's already translated. Kim translated it when we published it in the 80s. And what he translated was about 180 pages. So I'm digging in and doing my Brescia research, and I discover it's only one third of the book. <laughs> and I never knew that. I assume Kim knew that, but never told me. And I don't know why we didn't publish the rest of it. Maybe it wasn't selling that well, but Kim had his own reasons. But I thought it was the whole book, and it wasn't the whole book. So we had, of course, to retranslate the entire book. So we did not have the head start I thought we did. But, you know, I'm excited about Brescia. But, you know, I'm not sure there's anyone else of his comparable stature that's out there. I'd love people to drop me a line and let me know. And right now, we're looking at more contemporary work. I mean, we publish cartoonist Manuel Fior. We publish Jippy, a lot of European cartoonists that we're publishing, a couple South American cartoonists. Of course, a very slim but selective manga line. What's the one, Wandering Sun? Wandering Sun, yes. I have those. I like those quite a bit. They're very good. Eight volumes, yes. Well, I could do this all day. I want to ask some money questions since I'm relegated as the porn money person <laughs> right now. But I want to continue to theme a little. So in 1977, I read a couple like landmarks as far as like Fanographics was about to fall apart. And then money came in to basically save the company. So in 77, Kim Thompson came in using his inheritance to keep the money afloat. 
In 2003, Fantagraphics almost went out of business. A former employee said it was financially disorganized. And then fans contributed with a lot of orders to get it back up into the positives. Then Kim Thompson died in 2013. There is uh, voided Fantagraphics and Kickstarter brought in 150000 into the company. First, are these correct statements? And then second, is that just kind of always a concern? And is this a repeating thing that you just always have to do and that fans have supported you? you know, what's your take on all that? I think those are more or less correct. I mean, you know, I'd love to add some nuance, but you, know, you missed about two dozen other crises. Right. There's a lot. It's always been difficult. It got a lot easier when we started publishing Peanuts. Peanuts was a regularly published book, and that helped us a lot. I mean, prior to that, it was just economically debilitating. Yes. We were always under the gun. We would go for a year or maybe two years without suffering any financial problems, but then we would always hit a wall, and we always had to figure out something to do to make enough money to keep going. You know, the ones you mentioned were probably just the most acute financial crisis. Yeah, sudden, and then there's a sudden fix. Numerous financial problems. You know, and you have to understand that neither Kim nor I were business people. We didn't have a clue about business. It was all by the seat of our pants. And we had to learn how to do this. I had to learn how to read a P&L statement. I had to learn cash flow. And it was all intuitive. And we never had any master plan. And I think Kim and I were both temperamentally unsuited, you know, to be in a position of business, but it was the only way we could fulfill what we wanted to do. Yeah. You know, we wanted like originally, I mean, Kim came on after the comics journal started, but he was fully on board and we wanted, you know, to create this magazine of criticism and serious journalism. And the only way we could do it is by creating it ourselves. And that meant creating a business. Are you more of a business person now than you were? Yeah. If nothing else, by dint of the fact that I've done it for so long and I can navigate these difficulties. Yeah. So just out of necessity, you've had to kind of become more the business person that you used to be. Yeah, it's by necessity. I don't love it. Right. Some people love business and I'm not one of those. Last question for me that I have is I've talked to other people who publish magazines with interviews and I've heard of stories that they would, let's say, tape because they didn't have enough tapes. They would tape over someone else's interview with another person's interview just so they can get the transcript in. Do you actually have every audio tape interview that you've done or most of them? We have most of them. There might have been a few that have been lost, uh-huh. but we have hundreds and hundreds of tapes. What do you plan on doing with all those? Well, we're digitizing them now. Okay, so you are doing that. But, you know, it's a long process and it's a lot of labor and uh, we have limited resources. So it's a very slow process and it stops and it starts and stops and starts. Yeah, we're just keeping them. I mean, we're keeping them safe and we are digitizing them. Have any like documentary people ever approached you about using any of that footage for their own means? Yeah. Yeah. Someone who's doing a documentary on Charles Schultz, as a matter of fact, just now has my interview with Sparky is going through it to see if they want to use anything. I see. So then you're not necessarily against that. Oh, no, no, not at all. I don't know. I'd like these to be available at some point. I don't know how or, you know, through what mechanism, but... Is it all cassette tape then? Well, it is as of a few years ago. Let me see. Tommy Unger is the first artist that I interviewed digitally. Okay, yeah. As far as new interviews are digital. Yeah, sure. Every previous interview is on cassette tape. Yeah, cassette tape, yeah, which is hard to digitize. And they probably don't sound so good now, right? Well, they don't sound bad. I mean, they sound okay. 
I see. I would often interview people either, you know, in their office or in their studio. So the tape recorder would be right there or over the phone, which is even better. I would have a mechanism, some old fashioned mechanism where I plug it directly into the phone. The sound quality really isn't bad. Do you charge a fee for people using them or is it just kind of depending on the project? Yeah. Well, it does depend on the project. I played by ear. I mean, if the documentary had some money behind it, I would charge something. And if it was just some poor schlub in his garage putting something together, you know, I wouldn't. You know, I thought you were going to ask me if I actually taped accidentally over interviews. Well, yeah. Well, that's why I was asking if you actually had, but it sounds like you didn't do that too often. I've actually done this while interviewing the person. Like you just taped over something you just recorded? I interviewed Art Spiegelman once in his studio. And, uh, you know, you flip over a cassette tape. Yeah. Well, I flipped it over twice. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I was so fucking frustrated and pissed off. And we were going. We were like, we had a head of steam. And, you know, when Art and I get talking, we were just talking. And I flipped it over, you know, talking, flipped it over again. And then about 10 minutes into it, something triggers in my brain. And I go, oh, shit. <laughs> this was during the interview when he realized. During the interview, I mean, it was more than 10 minutes. It was like maybe 20 or 30 minutes into it. I realized it. And I said, oh, fuck, I can't believe I did this. And so we actually tried to reconstruct what we talked about. That's nice of him to play ball like that. I've had bigger nightmares, though. You know, I've interviewed people where the tape didn't turn out at all. Nothing. Oh. Oh, my God. I mean, it'd be like taping this goddamn thing and then, you know, going back and like looking at a blank screen. Like I forgot to hit the record button. How horrible would that have been? Yeah. Yeah, right. (laughs) But you'd be cool. We'd go another five hours. You're cool. You understand what it's like. I'd be here next Sunday. (laughs) I did that with Bern Hogarth. You know who Bern Hogarth is? Yeah, of course. Tarzan and his school and all sorts of things. Well, Bern, Bern was a fucking force of nature. You know, he was widely hated in comics. Why? Well, because of that, because he was just so, he was like a conversational juggernaut. I mean, he would just run right over you. And, you know, most people in comics, most people in his generation, I mean, they're kind of get along kind of people. They like, you know, easy chats and shop talk. And he would just expound on ideas and force you to answer questions. And he would demand that you explain your position on a certain matter. And most cartoonists of that generation didn't even know what the fuck he was talking about. You know, he would go into art history and he was just too much. He was just too much for most people. So I did a long interview with Byrne. And he was one of my close friends. He became one of my close friends. And I was on the phone. I was in Seattle. He was in LA. And I did like a two hour, two and a half hour interview with him. And interviewing Byrne was like wrestling an alligator. I mean, it was just, you had to be constantly on top of him. You had to, you know, be aware of what he was saying. And you had to, you know, you had to ask him a pertinent question. And so when you get off the phone after like two and a half hours with Byrne, you're like exhausted. And so I gave the tape to our transcriber. And I'll never forget it. She, I don't know if we had email back then, but she might have called me. I think she called me. And she said, tape's blank, nothing on it. Oh, my God. I said, I can't be. You know, did you fast forward and did you turn it off? Yeah, I tried, you know, both tapes. And so, you know, I didn't hit the switch. There's a little switch. There's a play switch and a tape switch on this little mechanism. And I guess I just didn't hit the right goddamn switch. So I was so fucking demoralized. Yeah, that would just kill me. That's hard. And like, what do you do, you know? So I couldn't do anything, but I had to call him and tell him. I didn't know how he was going to react. He was a very emotional guy, but he reacted as well as you could possibly hope for. Called him up and I said, Burn, I've got terrible news. I said, the last interview we did, he said, yeah, it didn't tape. 
There's like no recording. And I'm really sorry. I don't know what to say. There was a pause. And he said, well, God damn it. Let's do it again. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's great. And it was so great. And then, you know how if you do that, the second interview isn't as good because the guy's talked out, you know, like all the passion. Of it. it was just as good. Yeah, that's awesome. It was, it was like you'd never given the first interview. Maybe better because you were anticipating more stuff, right? Maybe I was better, but I was worried that, you know, he was going to go through the same stories about the School of Visual Arts and this and that, you know. It was as if he'd never spoken the same thing like a week earlier. I mean, he was just as passionate and just as excited about this. Oh, that's awesome. The passion was just as good. That's the difference, yeah. On the artist that I wish would get a full treatment? Yeah. Carlos Jimenez, I would like to see all of his. Yeah, the Spanish cartoonist, yeah. Yeah, and in terms of Spanish comics, and you won't be able to see this either, but I'm holding up Spanish Fever. You were talking about the new books that you published you know, with new material. Yep. This was a real treat. I enjoyed that tremendously. Oh, I'm so glad. That was like a sampler of Spanish cartoonists, yeah. Yeah, and stuff that you wouldn't see anywhere else. I mean, it's not like that's going to get a lot of publication anywhere. That was a great book. I encourage more of that kind of thing. That's the hardest sell. I'm sure. Omnibuses of that. Now, Carlos Jimenez, does his work read as well as it looks? Because I don't know. Certainly the stuff that almost looks like Schultz, that's the Peanuts characters in the Spanish orphanages, that's really powerful stuff. Okay. I read one volume of that that was published a few years ago, and I was just amazed by how strong that was. I can't speak for his other stuff apart from the artistry of it. Right. Because that's my problem, which wasn't Kim's problem, which is I can't read the stuff. So I have to either go by my gut, how it looks, how dense and interesting the storytelling is, or I have to have recommendations from people who have read it. You know, we have a very good track record doing it that way, but Kim could actually read them, and I can't do that. I was going to ask you, just how crippling is it to not have him? And is it still fun even now? Is it hard? Yeah, no, it's good. Eric Reynolds is our associate publisher. He does a fantastic job. You know, he's always on the lookout. He buys half of our books. He's probably closer to the younger generation of cartoonists and what they're doing than I am. Since I'm falling into decrepitude, you know, I pay attention less to what young cartoonists are doing, even though I try my best. But he procures both foreign material and domestic material, and he edits now, which you probably are aware of. So he's in touch with a lot of contemporary cartoonists. So no, I mean, it's actually, the last five years has actually been a remarkably smooth running operation. And I don't really know what specifically to attribute that to. I'd like to say it's wisdom, but I'm sure that's not the case. But, you know, maybe we finally got our act together and we're publishing just the right mix of books that can sustain us commercially. And that I think are probably the best books we've ever published. I truly think that we're publishing the best work in the history of the company. Which leads me to one other question, which is packaging. Because the difference between you, and I'm not going to name other names, but other people that are putting out a lot of product, what's your philosophy about the care that you are putting into the packaging, whether it's the women's comics or the Wally Wood thing or the foreign materials? Everything is so perfectly packaged. Is that a selling point? Is that a strategy? Is it a matter of personal pride? I'm not sure it's a selling point. I hate to say that. It's a matter of personal pride. It's a matter that we respect these artists well enough to create packages that serve their work, you know, in terms of design, the quality of the production, 
the paper, the amount of attention that we put into creating a format that is perfectly suited to the work itself. And to that, I really have to credit our design department. You know, we have just wonderful designers. Jacob Covey leads that department. We have three other designers. They all care deeply about what they do. They all care deeply about comics. They know comics. And a lot of this credit, you know, is theirs. They will come to me, I'll assign a book, and invariably, every one of them will come back to me and say, well, this is how I see the book. You know, it should be a little bit larger than you're anticipating, or it should be smaller. We should do something special with the hardcover. They'll come up with printing designs that I would never have thought of, but that are perfectly in harmony with the work itself. One of you talked about the earlier Eternaut. That was just, yeah, that's in a I love case, that. just perfect. It's fantastic. So it's just important to us that our books are beautifully designed, and we take a lot of pride in doing that. My only wish would be that whether it's in another podcast or if it's just at a con somewhere, but I would like an hour to talk movies with you. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I'm as passionate about movies as I am about comics, maybe even more so. So, Oh, I could talk for an hour just about the Archers and Michael Powell film. We'd be okay. Love the Archers. Yeah, yeah. Let's try to do that at some point. I would love to. To bring it full circle, and you can cut it off at this point, but I saw Skaranko at a San Diego con. You know, at this point, I have nothing against the guy, you know? I mean, he behaved kind of like a monster to me for a while, but we were talking. We were having a, a weirdly civilized conversation in a hotel lobby, and I said, Jim, we should do an interview. And he said, oh, yeah, that'd be a great idea. I said, all right, I'll give you a call. So, I, of course, I called several times, no answer. I got the message. But, you know, I would love to call and, you know, maybe just talk about movies. Why do you think that is? Jim had brought up possibly meeting and doing something. Why do you think it hasn't happened? What do you think is going on as far as that? You know, we had a kind of falling out and I think it just sticks in his craw and he probably doesn't want to talk to me outside of a hotel lobby. Are you talking about the falling out in 1973 when you left? Or are you talking about another one? Well, I'm talking about another one. That wasn't too terrible. I just left. There was tension in the air, but we really didn't have a definitive falling out. I mean, I think he knew I had to go, and I knew I had to go. But then a couple of years later, you actually read from this when you were reading snippets from the Comics Journal. It was in 1970, might have been 77, we did a little expose on media scene where they published a plagiarized article. It was unbelievable. It was just word for word stolen from another source. By Joel Thingval. Yes. How in the hell did you remember that name? My memory is kind of indexed like that. Okay, that's good. But he was a writer who had nothing to do with comics, I don't think. Right. And it was from like a newspaper in Pittsburgh or Cleveland or something. So anyway, you know, Media Scene just stole it word for word and published it in Media Scene. So we found this and we were muckraking. So we, you know, we had to do a piece on it. So I called up Jim and I said, Jim, you know, like, what's with this? And I sent him proof of it. And I said, there's, you know, a writer out there who's upset. And Jim just defended it. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, instead of saying, you know, this is a big fucking mistake. We shouldn't have done this. I'm going to talk to the writer who did this. This is not the way I produce a magazine. My recollection is that he just defended it or poo-pooed it. So it doesn't make any difference. Mm. And so then we did proceed to write that expose. And Mike Catron, in his Woodward and Bernstein mode, wrote the factual article, and I wrote the analytical opinion piece about it. And I suspect it's that that sticks in Jim's memory. 
I guess I also reviewed Chandler, now that I think about it. And tell me about that. That wasn't pretty. <laughs> I tend to forget. And then you reviewed Chandler. Did he respond to you about that or no? No. So this is just that you had put it out there and maybe that's one of the things. Yeah. And as I recall, it was a very extensive review. So, you know, there's these accumulated things. So, Alex, I can't speak for you, but I want to say it was a little bit intimidating interviewing an interviewer of the reputation and caliber yeah. that Gary has given us over the years. Well, because a lot of our format, we were influenced and inspired by a lot of your interviews, Gary, that you've done over decades. Well, thanks. It's clearly an aspect of what we're doing. It's definitely been a pleasure for me um, for all sorts of reasons. And in a weird way, I mean, although me and Jim did some interviews before, like when we started, I will say though that I felt an odd kinship to your fantastic fanzine interview of Starenko. Because when I interviewed him, I felt like, oh, wow, okay. Because I just met him at the bar, but we started talking about Bill Finger and random people like, you know, the quality comics and Eisner and the shop he had or whatever. And he just liked that. Someone my age even knew about that. And then suddenly we were looking at original art in his room and I go, why don't we do an interview? He's like, okay, well, let's do it. And the way we did it and we hung out in his room for those four or five hours to like six, seven. And after I was like, okay, I can do this. And there was something about that. And then artistically, he just said, you know, he watched some of my YouTube videos. He's like, he liked my Houdini one a lot. And he said, you know, I like that you're moving the panels around, but have you thought about moving the characters within the panels? And then I never thought about that. And then it started me off on all this animation stuff I did. So he had this positive thing. And when I read your Fantastic Fancy, and I was like, I kind of felt the kinship with what you guys did in that interview. So I look up to you a lot. Well, I appreciate that. It's such an embarrassing interview in retrospect. I reread it. Not, I mean, I didn't reread the whole thing. I just kind of skimmed it. I mean, my questions are so dopey. Well, I mean, you were a kid, but I mean, you had this adoration for him, which was interesting. And then obviously that changes with time. But I read that and then I just looking in your interview style and the comics journal, yeah. you know, all that and just reading all that. And I felt a connection to a lot of it. So well, that's really great. That's really great. Yeah, you don't know, you know, you don't know when you're doing these. I mean, when I was interviewing, you know, know, all these people. And holy shit, I was interviewing a lot of people. I don't even know how I did it. You know, I look back, I'd interview like eight artists a year, and they'd be 50,000 word interviews. I would obviously have read all the books, and I was doing everything else on top of that. And, you know, I kind of marvel at my productivity. But when you're doing it, you're so in the moment that you don't know that you're doing it that's going to be important 30 years from now or 40 years from now or 100. Oh, it totally is. Jim was reading that stuff in real time. I read that stuff looking back at it. Yeah, no, I'm glad. I mean, like, Stranko is such a blowhard, but I'm glad that you, you know, I'm glad you interviewed. I'm glad you got all this on the record. I think that's important. I get what you're saying about the prep. If I prepared for court the way that I prepare for these interviews, I would be something to be reckoned with. <laughs> right. All right. Well, Jim, any further questions, Your Honor? Nope. I'm going to let it go. This has been a really fun episode of the Comic Book Historians podcast with publisher, historian, virtual pornographer, Gary Groth. Thanks so much. You have been so generous with your time. Jim and I really respect your work from many levels. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thanks. Thanks, Gary.